That's how you do it. Welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Friel, and I'm uh, enjoying a little bit of my own company this morning. Um, just kind of getting my stuff packed, ready to go to Africa, and figured it'd be a good time to catch up on uh, you know, on Q and A questions. Um, they roll in periodically, and uh, and I put a thing on Instagram, you know, asking people what they what they'd like to hear about or questions, and uh, a lot of stuff are good, are really good topics. So, uh, yeah, with that. Um, I'll just roll right into it and hopefully don't ramble too much and uh, give you give you too much terrible information. Um, the first one, the first one that popped up was uh, keeping meat keeping meat cool in August. I think they're primarily referring to caribou, and that's ah, a little you know it's a little irrelevant for this time of year because it's going to be cold from about from here on out. But I'd say you know. It's really not overly complicated keeping your meat cool, even in pretty warm weather here in Alaska. Anyway, it's all I can really speak for. Um, you do, you, of course, you know you got to follow the basic basic principles of meat care. You know, get your animal broke down as quick as you can, um, <clears throat> whether it's deboned or bone in. You know, get the skin off. Let that let that meat air out and cool down as quick as as quick as you can. And then, uh, keeping the meat clean is a big one. Um, all that, you know, dirt every, well, I'm sure, you know, everyone else sees on social media, not too, I guess not too much, fortunately, but, um, periodically see, you know, quarter, you know, just unbagged quarters caked in sand or leaves or whatever. And all that shit, all that stuff has, uh, is just loaded with bacteria and, you know, the more bacteria you get on your quarter, um, and the more stuff you have caked on there, the, the less, <clears throat> I guess the more, the quicker it's going to, it's going to decompose, you know, a, you got, you got more bacteria caked on there and, you know, you don't have just the, the clean surface of the meat to, to catch the air and or catch the air. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but, um, it's just, just very important to keep your meat as clean as possible, both for processing and to delay decomposition, um, and keeping it dry too. I mean, I so, granted sometimes there's just nothing you can do. And I saw a picture um, posted the other day. It was one of those like, oh, you know, here's my trophy picture with the meat looked like from several several caribou bulls, you know, on kind of makeshift meat poles hanging, and then a bunch of it's just laid out on a tarp, um, which nothing wrong with that. But you know, half the stuff had dirt caked all over it. And then you could tell it'd been sitting out in the rain for at least some time because all the rib cages they're they're laying there, you know, concave side up, and they're pooled up with water, and all the meat on the tarp looked like, I mean, you know how you how a steak would look if you threw it in a bowl of water all day long, kind of loses its color and gets that gray, nasty, mushy look to it. Um, and I don't know, it's. <laughs> You're going to brag about, here's my trophy, and that shit looks just disgusting. Um, so, yeah, man, try uh, you try try to keep it as dry as you possibly can. That'll also delay the decomposition. Um, you know, we've all heard, you know, putting meat in contractor bags, 
and, and sinking it in a creek, at least, you know, sometimes just temporarily just to get the body heat out of it. That does work pretty good. You do want to be careful, um, that, you know, to try not let those bags get holes in them, use heavy duty stuff. And, um, when you're piling rocks on it or whatever, you just, you just gotta kind of be careful. And then you, you know, this is basic too, but you absolutely do not want to leave that meat, leave meat in plastic bags exposed to the sunlight or anything like that. Um, I will carry my meat in my backpack in contractor bags, but I'm putting chilled meat in the bag, in my backpack. And then as soon as I stop or, you know, stop for the day, it's coming right back out of there and instantly out of the, out of the bag to air out and, and dry out. Cause it seems like the moisture kind of, you know, you know, the, even, even like, you know, meat on a quarter, the moisture kind of permeates everything inside that bag. And that's one reason, you know, it, it'll last longer if you hang it out in the air than in a plastic bag, because that, that moisture doesn't have anywhere to go, but it will last for, for several days. I've packed sheep in really warm weather, just taking it out at night, getting air, you know, letting it out in the, spreading it out inside the game bags on the rocks to cool or to keep cool and then jam it right back in my backpack in the morning. I'm just being very careful not to let that, that plastic bag itself be exposed to the sun. Um, that's the biggest thing. And, you know, probably the only other thing I can think of if you're, you're having to stay for an extended time is uh, if you're in the tundra or whatever, a lot of times you can dig up a section of moss and, you know, it, whether in game bags that aren't going to get dirt through them or whatever you can do. If you've got a tarp, you can roll them up in. Um, basically bury that meat in the tundra, even if you don't get all the way down to the to the hard frozen permafrost. Um, that ground underneath the moss is very stable and cool temperature, so um, that'll... that can keep your meat good for a surprising amount of time but if you're done hunting you know i'd say just don't waste any don't waste excess time and uh if you don't have to and get your meat back in there so uh yeah get it cool keep it clean and keep it dry those are the biggest things um let's see without ruining your areas could you explain your process for finding good sheep spots um know the right people (laughs) um i mean that's you know, a little bit, some, some of my sheep spots are the general areas, you know, I've been, been kind of put onto them from other people in the past, but, um, probably the, the biggest thing I would say to anybody looking for their own sheep spots is that it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of work. You know, you, it's really something that you kind of got to earn and do it on your own. There's no, you know, there's can be ways some people cheat the system a little bit or, you know, there's not really a system, but we'd call it cheating the system. You know, if you're not, you're not paying your dues, so to speak. So, uh, you know, the, if I was looking to just find a totally new sheep area, this is probably what I would do. I would think of, all right, you know, there's this mountain range or this region I want to hunt. Um, I would probably, I mean, even still myself, I would probably call, try and talk to, you know, a biologist, whether it's at the fishing game office there, there, or here in Fairbanks or from an anchorage there, and, uh, just try to get some general information on, on the amount of those ranges that, that 
you can expect to find sheep in or rams in. Sometimes you'll get you get pretty good information. Um, I would I wouldn't count on like finding your hunting spot from Fish and Game because they're going to tell everybody that asks the same thing they're telling you. But it can be a good start for just nar- slightly narrowing down where you're going to go. So you know you got your your general area, then you find out some information maybe on on where you know where there's more sheep, less sheep, et cetera. And, and then you can narrow down your search from there, you know, so then I would maybe start to look for access, you know, access into certain areas. So, you know, am I going to try to fly? Am I, am I going to hire someone to fly me in? Am I, and, and I'm just speaking this as like myself, I don't have an airplane, um, you know, for guys that do have an airplane, can make things easier in a lot of ways, but it also complicates things. So going just as myself, no airplane, you know, I do have a boat, um, and a four wheeler. So I'll go look at access. Like, all right, do I want to pay someone to fly me in? And I'm sometimes I'll explore these different options. Like what, what are my options if I want to pay someone to fly me in? Well, you got to talk to charter services in that area and see what you're dealing with, with them. Um, do I want to hike in? Well, what roads are around and what, you know, just looking at a map, what possible drainages could I get to from the road or do I think I could get to from the road? And even with that information, you know, a lot of times the, you know, a local fishing game office or, you know, sometimes you can get help from people in that area just asking them, you know, you're not going to, you don't want to go, oh, where, where's a good sheep hunting spot? You could just ask them, hey, is there any way you know of to access this certain spot or this, this drainage, et cetera? Um, you know, you're best, you're best off ask, asking your questions in generality, in generalities, and, and don't expect anyone to just hold your hand and show you where the sheep are going to be, because typically that's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, you, you just got to, if you want a, to find a good spot long term, you gotta you gotta put the work in. You can't really cheat it. Um, so you know access points, and I'd want to kind of narrow that down. If I have a chance to go look at some, you know, I either before I would make my plans go head off somewhere, I'm either going to go look at that access point myself, and that doesn't even, doesn't necessarily mean scouting for sheep. If you have the time. And you can go actually like try to find rams. That's even better. But a lot of times, you know, a lot of us don't have that time. Um, so the couple times recently that I've looked for new areas, most of the time, you know, my scouting trips are just scouting access. You know, all right, what does this access look like? How far, you know, how far can I get on my four wheeler here if I'm trying to get to this spot here? You know, you know what does that turn my walk into um, or or is there any decent trails that I can walk up this ridge or, you know, just, I'm talking in generalities, but, um, it's a good, it's good if you can either scout your access points yourself. Cause I mean, when I was going hunting in Toke, I ran down there just to scout access points and that really decided where I was going to go. You know, I didn't lay eyes on a ram during my, you know, quote unquote scouting trip, but just, seeing the different access points made me decide where I was going to go. So you either want to, if you can, you either want to, to see that yourself or have kind of a bona fide or person you trust being like, all right, no, this is, you know, 
you can get in this way and here's how before you devote your whole, you know, 10 day, two week plan, you know, cause you could eat, if you, you just kind of think maybe you can do it this way, you know, you might be able to, but you might get down there and get turned around and then be sitting there, sitting there holding your balls wondering, you know, where, where am I going to go sheep hunting? You know, and you burn two or three days just trying to go somewhere, you know, sometimes, and some, some guys, some people like that exploratory type of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some, sometimes you can find some great spots doing that, but you got to understand that if, if you don't have verified ways to access, you know, you can be wasting a pretty good amount of time or spending a pretty good amount of time, um, uh, exercising an exercise in futility trying to find a spot that's not there but sometimes that's the way it goes so it just kind of depends on the way you want to look at it but yeah i mean access aside from access it's just boot you know once you find you know an area that you think or should have should have sheep and you find access to that area um aside from that it's just it's just uh putting your boots on the ground and and covering country and, and glassing and, and doing your best, you know, and I would say, obviously, you know, if you get in there and you, you see a lot of rams or you kill a good one, um, then you got a good kind of backhole spot for yourself. Um, I wouldn't necessarily write one off if I, if I didn't kill one, um, the first year, but yeah. I mean, I don't know who am I kidding. If I don't, don't see, don't see any Rams or, or anything like that in an area, I'm probably not going to go there again, um, anytime soon. But, uh, also keep in mind, you know, with your experience level too, because there's a lot of people that, I mean, every year, you know, I talk to guys who run into people who walked right by plenty of Rams. So, you know, if, if you're a new sheep hunter, you know, just be sure and take your time and do a ton of glass and don't worry as much just about covering country. Um, but yeah, anyway, so you, it's, it, when it boils down to it, you're just going to have to commit to exploring a new area and, you know, that's all there is to it. So, you know, general area access, and then just putting your boots on the ground and figuring it out. And, uh, yeah, get a drink of water here. <clears throat> I usually don't like, I don't like to talk this much in a room. Um, all right, next question $1,500 to spend on both a rifle and scope for sheep. What recommendations do you have? Um, I'd say, you know, a lot of, I mean, you could spend so much money on a fancy sheep rifle. My one custom rifle that Steve built me, I don't know, it would probably cost three grand or so. Um, but, you know, I obviously like did some, did plenty of horse trading with him over the years to, to pay for that. But, uh, you're, yeah, I mean, if you got fifteen hundred dollars to spend on a sheep rifle, you're going to be just fine. For example, the rifle both Frank and I killed our sheep with this year. Carrie killed her sheep with this rifle this year. Frank killed his ram with it last year, and we both killed our rams with it the year before. Um, is just a plain old factory Winchester XPR and six five Creedmoor, and that's kind of like you know I. I no, don't know about the term economy rifle, because um, that's a lot more like the old Remington Seven Tens, like the cheapo depot ones. Um, and it's not, it's not like that. But the the XPR isn't an especially pretty rifle, or you know, 
It's not a rifle you pick up and, and are afraid to beat up. It's kind of a work working rifle, um, but it's affordable. They're like 500 bucks. And over several years, I, ha- I have a few of them. Over several years, I haven't had a single issue with any of them. Um, and, you know, that it's as long as you can find a fat, even just a, I would just say a factory rifle that you like and, and tends to shoot pretty good. A lot of people like the Tikas, they're fairly lightweight. They have a reputation of shooting real well. Um, you know, the Savages, you know, I've owned a few Savages and they all seem to shoot really well. You know, they're kind of a, having reputation as being a little bit sloppier action than other rifles, but every single one of them I, I own is, is just shoots lights out and I haven't had any problems with any of them. So, um, there's those, you know, your Remington 700s go to your Winchester model 70s go to, I mean, any, any real fat, you know, factory rifle that just shoots a minute at angle and isn't super heavy for me is going to be just fine. You know, if, if you want to, you want to start chasing ounces, you're going to start spending more money and that's, you know, that's just fine with some people, but with 1500 bucks, I would probably just go with something like a Tika. I mean, or just whatever your, your taste inclines. Um, and I would get a loophole for, for a scope. I would get a loophole. I've used them both and I like them both either a very X two, two to seven by 33 with the CDS turret or the, or the VX three. Is it the, what is that? A, two and a half to eight by 36. It's just a little bit bigger scope, um, than the two to seven by 33, but also with the CDS dial, the custom, uh, custom dial system that you base, you, you send them the load data that you want and, uh, the load, the load you're going to shoot, you send them the load data, they burn a turret, send it back, you pop it on your scope and, uh, you know, for a sheep rifle, you know, have a zero 200 yards and, just my average elevation, I think on mine, I put is like 5,000 feet. Cause that's usually right in the neighborhood where you're going to be shooting doll sheep and, uh, you know, 5,000 feet, 45 degrees temperature, you know, for the ballistics and then a zero at 200. And then if that thing's 350, you just turn it up to 3.5 and let her rip. Um, you do obviously have to worry about wind, but, uh, you know, as far as elevation, that takes that out of it. And that's kind of getting sidetracked, but, um, I mean, that's, that's what I would go with. And I can't remember what those scopes cost, but that should leave you, should leave you a few hundred bucks left over with 1500. I I mean, I wouldn't worry about spending all of that, just a decent factory rifle. That's not, that's not super heavy. And, uh, and one of those either, either the VX two, two to seven by 33 or the VX three, uh, it's it's like, I can't remember. It's like a two and a half to eight by 36, um, with the CDS turret. That would be my pick. That, that'd be the rifle I've set up with. And, uh, yeah, I just don't think you're going to go wrong unless you, unless you want to spend a bunch of extra money that will do just fine. So let's see <clears throat> one talking about brown bear rifles and cartridges. Um, and that could be a whole you know, discussion podcast, I guess my take is, you know, if you're, you're going to go hunt brown bears, the big, you know, the biggest rifle that is, (laughs) I said, you know, 
the biggest rifle you can shoot very well and comfortably and are totally confident in. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to go buy a bigger rifle and just see how big you can go. Um, you know, I mean, one of the biggest brown bears I've, yeah, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen pictures, of a lot of biggest, big brown bears, but verified big brown bears, like, you know, measured by a guy who I know how he measures and what he does. And he doesn't need to exaggerate was killed. It was a, an 11 foot bear with a, was it? can't remember if it broke 30, but it was like 29 and change skull, just a giant. And I saw the video of him shooting it. He killed it with a 308 with like 168 grain barns or 165s. I can't remember the exact bullet weight. Um, he shot it twice, you know, both shots in the lungs. And this bear was so big, its belly's dragging as it's trying, just climbing up this hill. Shoots it once in the lungs and it kind of shutters there and shoots it again and just sacks it, drops it. <clears throat> Man, I needed some water this morning. Um, I know Steve's girlfriend killed hers with a 708. I know, I mean, I know of several big brown bears people killed with a 308. Um, man, even just a 30 odd six with two twenties, you know, if you make a good, you make a good shot. Um, I mean, it's plenty of gun to kill them. Um, the biggest thing I would say is, is your, your bullet construction. You want a good bonded bullet, you know, those mono metal bullets like a Barnes or, um, you know, Barnes or some of the other ones, uh, are good or great. I know a lot of guys that swear by Barnes. Um, I've used like some of the Hornady bonded bullets. I know guys that really like those federal edge TLR bonded bullets, um, whatever the caliber you shoot, you just want a bullet that's going to hold together and punch through and get good penetration. And, you know, you just, it's just not, it's a lot simpler than, than we, you know, people, including myself, like to make it out to be sometimes, you know, if I'm going brown bear hunting, I'm probably going to take my 375 just because I have one and I like it and it's a good shooting rifle, but you don't really need it. Um, you know, I'm just trying, thinking of different cartridges, you know, it just doesn't matter that much. Shot placement is, is by far the biggest, the biggest factor in any of it. You know, you hear guys, which is kind of a, this kind of a sidetrack, but you hear or every freaking day on some Facebook forum, I see people, oh, I'll shoot them in the shoulders to break them down. It's like, well, what do you mean by shooting the shoulders? You know, because you shoot them high shoulder, like up where their shoulder blade is, there's nothing behind it. If they're broadside and you shoot them, you know, that, that, that what they're called, maybe calling a shoulder arm bone, you know, the way it it bent, the way it's directed, if they're standing broadside, there's not usually anything behind that either. You know, and I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of guys who, who, well, my uncle, I think they used to, you know, had seen so many bears lost by guys that, try to shoot them in the shoulder and just break one leg and that bear, bears can move a pretty dang quick on three legs. And, you know, you never end up getting them cause you're not hitting anything vital. You know? Yeah. In theory, if you could break both their, both their front legs, then they're not going to go far, but you, you are going to have to shoot them again right away too. So I mean, myself, 
seeing what happens to him, shooting sharp sticks through both lungs. I'd say every single time, just put a bullet through both that bear's lungs, and he is not going to go far. Um. Anyway, that being said, you know, that's, I mean, that's the hunting side. You know, just a rifle you can shoot well, you know, a 7 mag or a, a 308 or a 708 or a 30-06. Um, any of those, you know, with good modern bullets that you can shoot well will do just fine. Now, guiding for brown bears, I haven't done near as much guiding as a lot of guys have, but I would say... In particular, you know, you're probably going to want, and most guys seem to prefer a controlled feed action like the Ruger M77s do. Um, I think the, the Model 70s, the Winchester Model 70s do, and that's like a Mauser-style <clears throat> extractor that as it pushes, as the bolt pushes the bullet out of the magazine, it pops up into the bolt face, and that, that cartridge is held by the bolt face, you know, and the extractor and jammed into the chamber, whereas push feed actions like a Remington 700 or like a Savage 110 or something, that bolt face is just pushing the cartridge and it pop, as soon as it pops free of the feed lips on the magazine, it um, it's just the bullets hanging in there loose and you're depending on it popping up and sliding into the chamber. Um, so they're said to be less reliable, but uh, I, don't, I have never had any feed issues with them, but you know, funny stuff can happen when the adrenaline's pumping and you got a bear spinning around and you're trying, you know, short stroking stuff or whatever. Um, so a lot of a lot of guides and outfitters prefer a controlled feed action. So is it just you know, same with dangerous game hunting in Africa? They say um, that it's just a little bit more reliable than a standard push feed action. So. You know, my 375s just, it's, I don't think they make that particular model anymore. It was the M77 Hawkeye Alaskan and 375 Ruger. And I think the one they make now is like called the Guide Gun, a little bit shorter barrel and muzzle, muzzle brake, which I don't freaking care for. I hate them muzzle brakes, especially in a situation like that. I mean, <laughs> when you got a bit, you know, shooting at animals in general, and especially when you got a bear in front of you, like, you're not going to feel the recoil that much. I mean, but having had those muzzle brakes go off right by your head, you know, that could disorient you a hell of a lot more than your recoil will. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So I don't know what, what more to, what more to say on that right now. Um, <clears throat> got one talking about, uh, one guy asking, info on you know hide prep caping and what's involved in like skinning a wolf foot or sheep and a lot of this stuff would be fun to get into later this winter with the other guys too but uh that's a lot of information packed in a in a in a pretty small little question um you know hide prep is one side of it like and when i say hide prep i mean like stuff back at the shop out of the field um or you know when you get back to camp some some of that prepping work can be done um you know say like caping a sheep on the mountain or it, re it really goes in if i'm caping what i'm talking about for those that don't know is for like a shoulder mount or a half body mount um and life-size cape i guess would 
life-size keeping would be a similar thing. It just gets more and more involved the more you want to do. But for your typical shoulder mount, you know, whatever the animal, I start keeping, um, you know, I start keeping before, usually before I ever pull guts out or anything like that. Now, something like a moose, yeah, I'll pull the guts out before I, before I want to cape them. But, uh, you know, you'll make, and this is a little difficult, so I may just kind of cut this one short, but a little difficult to explain without diagrams. But, um, thinking as far as most of the mistakes I see people make the most, cause I have done a ton of taxidermy prep work, um, and, you know, a lot of fleshing and stuff they see is when people are rough skinning their capes off the animals is not leaving enough on there. Now, if you think of what you see on your shoulder mount, like sheep, for example, you know, your typical sheep shoulder mount, the hide only goes back to, you know, eh, maybe like, like halfway back that front shoulder. So, you know, the, on my mounts, you know, you get just like maybe the front edge of that, that front leg as it comes down and then, you know, half the brisket. So it's tempting to cut those things sometimes right behind the shoulder. Well, sometimes you don't quite make straight cuts and then they're, you know, you're short on hides on the top or the bottom. So I would, I just tell everyone leave more skin on there than you think you need. And sometimes it comes in handy for repairing spots too. If you have a little bit of extra, um, on a sheep or say a caribou or whatever, man, I would cape them halfway between the back of the front shoulder and the hip, you know, right in the middle of the middle. And what I'll do, I'll make my first cut down their back and it helps, especially on the back cut when you're, you're called dorsal skinning, like you're making your cut on the back and you can do a lot of tech guys like life-size capes to be dorsal skinned. And that's a whole nother can of worms I won't really get into, but you know, the biggest thing when you're making your cuts is to make them from the inside of the skin out. So with a sheep, I'll start just down from where I'm going to make my Y cut to his horns and stick my knife through the skin. And then with the sharp edge up, <clears throat> slide that knife down is the middle of their spine, down the skin, cutting through the skin from the inside out. And if you cut from the outside in, you're cutting you're also cutting all the hair follicles right along that line. So when a taxidermist goes to sew that back up, it's going to look like shit because the hair, you know, you've cut, given the thing a haircut right there. So cutting from the inside out, you do cut some hair too, but it really minimizes that. And that's for, I mean, I would, that's just a general thing for fur skinning or ta or taxidermy prep, anything like that, any kind of skinning you want to, do you want to make as many of your cuts as you can from the inside out? Now, when I, you know, I'll make my dorsal cut, run it down there, and then I make my cut around the animal's body, you know, halfway between the, the back of the front shoulder and the front of the hip to give plenty of cape. Um, what I'll do, you know, after I make my dorsal cut is I'll mark, I'll start a cut on each side of that dorsal cut to go around the animal and meet at the belly. And before I run any of those cuts out or start peeling skin, I make a cut on each side of that so that they line up, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm not, you know, taking one side off, skinning it, and then making a crooked ass dorsal, you know, cut around the side from the other one. If that, if I'm explaining that right, I hope I am, um, you know, another, another, 
tip like that is it's similar to what I've heard for guys doing, uh, doing skinning a giant brown bear. That's just too big. The hide's going to be too big to get out. Um, you know, sometimes those 10 and 10 foot plus brown bears, you know, literally their hides are weighed 150, 200 pounds or more sometimes, especially if they're wet and guys will have to cut them in two pieces to get them out. Um, realistically. So, and you want to do all this stuff on the animal. This is kind of really getting sidetracked, but, um, I, I have all thought it's pretty interesting. And the taxidermist that, that told me how to do this, um, recommended, you know, you're, it's almost like, like you're, like your shoulder cape and a sheep, you know, halfway down the body, you know, between the hips and the shoulders, you're going to make a cut all the way around the bear. And then you got the front half and the back half, but to help them sew that back together absolutely correctly, what you do is you, you make cuts to ref, you make slashes to reference, uh, slashes or cuts to perpendicular to the main cut to line up. Now, if that didn't make any sense, um, you know, if you've got a bear on his belly, say on his belly and you're standing his ass facing forward, all right, halfway, halfway between his hips and shoulders, where you're going to make that cut all the way around his belly, that girth cut, you make a cut, you know, six, eight inches long. It doesn't have to be long. You make a cut straight, you know, straight parallel from his head to his tail along that line. You make a cut front to back, and then you roll him over, and along that same line, girth wise you make another cut front to back you basically like you know you do one at 12 o'clock if his back is 12 o'clock you do one at 12 3 9 and 6 and then your your girth cut that goes all the way around him goes through the middle of each one of those so now they have four reference spots of uh, you know they'll have a little x that they basically sew back together so that the hide doesn't get all cockeyed and and crooked <coughs> um Anyway, uh, before I get too far in the weeds, I mean, who's, who am I kidding? Um, probably the only the other thing I'd say on that right now, well, two things, you know, that brought up a wolf foot, and um, I need to do probably a, a new tutorial video on doing that because I, you know, after I learned how to skin wolf feet the right way, I mean, I skinned hundreds of wolf feet the wrong way, and it took forever. When I, and it's it's probably, whether it's a wolf or a coyote or fox, whatever, Excuse me. It's uh, one of the most difficult things, or intim. It's not the most difficult. It's one of the most intimidating parts of of a of a fur prepping or skinning job is doing the feet. I mean, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, and it's a pain in the ass. Um, but you know, when I started, I kind of just l- learned my own way and picked up tips here and there. And finally, you know, I thought I was doing pretty good when it took me you know, 20 minutes to skin a wolf foot. And then I was shown quote unquote the right way. And I mean, when I'm, when I'm on my game, I can do a wolf foot. I can skin a wolf foot with the pad intact, you know, a fleshed pad completely skinned all the, all the webbing between the toes opened up in like less than three minutes. And basically how, how you do that. And, um, I really should put a video out on that and I might have one somewhere is you, when I'm skin that, when I skin the wolf or coyote, whatever it is, I, I do them the same way, 
get the animal skin off the carcass. I'll leave the foot bones in. I'll just knock them off at the joint. And then once I have that, that whole critter peeled, I'll take them and skin down the foot bone a little ways, just long enough to where I can stick this halibut hook through between the middle toes, just through the actual foot. Um, not through the skin, but I get the skin peeled down, jam that halibut hook and hang it up on my winch. And I don't, I don't put pressure on them with the winch, but just hanging them by that foot bone, you have the hide working for you. And when you're skinning anything, tension is your friend. So it makes it much easier. You know, you can pull on the hide with your left hand and kind of manipulate spots with your thumb, but that hanging it by the foot and then peeling it in totally inside out without actually touching the pad forces you to open up all the webbing between their toes and all that to get to the last knuckle. And then you just cut all the toes off at the last knuckle. And it's really really easy peasy once you once you get used to it and you you learn where you need to cut um skin and hooves i don't really care for skin and hooves i i'll do it um it's kind of a pain in the ass um and the best way you know i i it's something i'm sure i have a lot to learn on too you know um i may find a better way about of doing it but you basically you're any hoofed animal sheep or moose or caribou or i've done quite a few muskox mountain goats um, there's actually two toe bones basically that go into those split hooves and just like any other foot, you know, you got to get down there, open it up. And it's, it seems to me, at least the way I do it, you got to kind of need a flexible, sharp knife that you can get in there and really dig in those joints and, and pop those toes basically out of there and then try to clean as much of the fat you know, as you can easily get out of there and just pack the shit out of them with salt, um, is what I do. And I, you know, it, it seems to work okay for me. Um, anyway, I'll move on a little bit here. Let's see. Let's see. Oh, I guess I would, uh, along, yeah, before I move on along the lines, um, there was another question along the line to lop them in here. It was along the lines of taxidermy prep and hide care and, and hide care, like your cape. I mean, you got to treat it just like your meat basically. And I know, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before several times. Um, but a lot of the same principles apply, you know, you get the hide peeled, you want to let it cool, get some air. You don't want to let it like dry out, um, you know, especially before it's prepped, Uh, but you want to let it cool. You want to keep it clean because the same thing with your meat. If you get a shitload of dirt and leaves and moss and stuff on there, that's more bacteria. And those spots will tend to slip a lot quicker than, than, than if it's just kept clean. And also, you know, like if you've, if you've ever freaking dealt with a black bear that someone skinned on a sandbar, um, (laughs) then freaking, you, you know, I was trying to think of something smart ass to say about that, but I lost it. But yeah, if you've ever if you ever skinned a black or dealt with a black bear that someone skinned on a sandbar, you know what I'm talking about, and you know like how much of a pain in the ass prepping stuff is when they're dirty and covered in sand. You know, it's rough on your tools. It takes longer, um, and that's why a lot of taxidermists and whatnot will charge more, give you an extra charge if if it's if it's dirty. But you know, so let it cool keep it clean and, you know, keep it as dry as you can. 
the exception to that with uh, sheep capes, if I'm in an area, you know, camping in creek bottoms and whatnot, I will, I will almost always sink my sheep cape in the creek. No game bag, nothing. Just skin down to the rocks in the creek and uh, bury it in rocks because uh, it, you know, and a lot of people know this. Some people don't. Um, if you if you can clean all the blood out of your sheep hide, you're going to be way better off, and the taxidermist isn't going to have to bleach it as hard. And that bleach is rough on that bleach is rough on is rough on hair. You know, I mean, it. You know, a lot of sheep. You know, a lot of guys will bleach sheep a little bit, but if they got a bad stain, they got to bleach hard. You know, that's yeah, it's you know typically not going to be as good an end product as if you just got it clean in the first place. That sheep hair is hollow. And if the blood dries hard inside, it gets in those follicles, it can be, you know, damn near impossible to get it out. Um, so I'll sink, you know, I'll sink my sheep cape in there and just keep it completely submerged. And in a lot of those mountain creeks, you know, glacial fed stuff, like they're so cold. It's like being in a, being in a refrigerator and, uh, you know, you do, you have to be super careful when you take it out that you don't, you know, leave it out in the sun or put it in a plastic bag or, you know, and leave it in the sun or anything like that. But, um, it seems to be well worth the risk and I've never had any issues. Um, I've never had any problems with capes that I've done that with. You do get a little bit of sand in them. Um, but overall on a sheep cape, it's kind of, I think it's worth it. You know, stuff like mountain goats, eh, it's not as big a deal because they're, they're, have a totally different hair. It's a lot tougher and, and that blood will come out in the tannery. It doesn't get like actually inside the hair follicle, like in a sheep. And, uh, and one other thing, you know, I was actually talking about this with my taxidermist is, is uh, a lot of your trophy care stuff happens before you even take the shot, you know, you know, not every day, but almost every day I see, you know, during hunting season. I mean, I can't, count the number of sheep and mountain goats I've seen, you know, you either see the shot video or, you know, if you see a sheep that he's, his face is covered in blood, his jaws sticking out one way, and he's got a ton of chips out of his horns, you know, white scratches and spots in his horns, you know, he took a pretty good spill and, you know, it's not necessarily a deal breaker, but once you, you know, you have a tax terms point out to you, um, the end result of what happens that, I mean, sheep's hair is very fragile and, you know, I can look at my mounts and see spots where they, you know, even I don't have any that really fell very far at all, but some that rolled a little ways, you can see in the mount where their hair got cut on rocks. Um, cause it's literally, you know, they're just like, like someone is pranking you with a, a hair clippers or something and just went, you know, when they hit that rock, it cuts that hair and <clears throat> taxidermists a lot of times can take some of that out. If they have stuff to patch it, they'll put it on the form and you can't really see this damage until it's on the form. And then some guys, you know, can, while it's still wet, can cut out spots and patch it in. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, I guess the bit, uh, you know, one of the biggest things is just, uh, just being aware of, of where the animal's standing when you shoot or before you make the decision to shoot, 
kind of look at the likelihood of them taking a huge tumble. You know, I mean, you see pictures of sheep every year. It's at the bottom of, you know, a thousand foot rock slide where it's nothing but cliffs and rocks. And, you know, you kind of, you got to know what you want. If you want a nice amount out of your trip, you're probably better off, even if it takes another day or two, trying to follow that sheep till he puts him in a, puts himself in a spot where you can anchor him. He's not going to roll and, uh, or, or it's just the roll is going to be gentler and grassier. All right, I'm back. I had to go take care of something real quick. Uh, let's see if I remember where the heck I was at. Um, um, I think talking about, yeah, talking about stuff before the shot and just, you know, the decisions you make on where to shoot animals. And and it's not meant to pick on anybody. And, you know, everyone's kind of, you just got, it's a decision you got to make on your own. I know a lot of people, you know, pass up shots and, you know, at, at times I've passed up shots because <laughs> you know that, that an animal, you know, particularly mountain goats are notorious for, for falling a long way. And part of it's just the fact of where they live and where they like to hang out, man. Some of them will just, some of them will never give you an opportunity in a spot that they're not going to, that they're not going to nosedive. Um, so you just, I don't know, you just make a decision and do the best you can but um you know goats you know ah, i don't even know where to start with goats they're they're interesting because their hair is a lot tougher than a sheep you know they don't their hair doesn't get cut like a sheep does on the rocks and a lot of times it's you know their their skin on their body is is thicker um, especially like a big old billy goat you know sometimes that later in the season their skin on their ass gets to be and it, gets to be an inch thick excuse me now i'm burping um but goats their deal is you know their horns obviously you know they're big bodied typically big billy and their horns are you know pretty fragile compared to a sheep's and uh and uh but their faces are super fragile like i know the the big billy i got uh, mounted on a pack frame i was gonna have him half body mounted and the, my taxidermist is like, guys, uh, like, you know, I could probably, it, it did at the time, he, I mean, he rolled a ways, but it didn't even seem like he was beat up that bad. But a lot of this stuff you don't even see till it comes back from the tannery, you know, where hair roots get cut and skin gets damaged. And then hair ends up slipping out at the tannery. Um, <clears throat> you know, he was pretty banged up and I can see now. So I just said, well, yeah, melt the head and mount the head and the feet and, you know, strap them on a pack frame and, and put a little bit of blood on there. And it ended up turning out really cool. But, um, that's just, it's just something to think about, you know, you know, you see occasionally you see where guy, you know, guys shooting goats, literally where all they can do is, do, is jump off a cliff, you know, and if they happen to anchor them where they're at, you're not getting to them. And I, you know, I don't know if, if, if all you want to do is say you shot a goat and pick up a pile of hamburger at the bottom of the hill, well, you know, I guess that's your prerogative, but, um, it's just something to think about and, and sheep too, you know, it's like, you know, we work so freaking hard for these things and sometimes, you know, sometimes that's your only option. You know, sometimes the one shot you may get is he's at, you know, up in the, up in no man's land at the top of a thousand foot rock shoot and, and you just got to make the decision to, you know, are you willing to shoot him knowing that he's probably going to get the shit knocked out of him and pop a horn off and, and, 
you know, break bones and stuff like that on the way down or, and, uh, and take that chance or are you willing to wait for maybe a better shot on him or in the spot that he's better? You know, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but it's something that I think, I think, um, warrant warrants consideration, you know, ideally it'd be like something like this year where, you know, and actually the last three sheep I've shot have been just the way it worked out in spots that they didn't even, I don't think they even rolled over at all. I mean, they just kind of flopped down on the ground and that was it. Um, I mean, obviously, obviously for, for trophy quality, that's, that's most ideal, but yeah, I mean, a big fall, you know, like some of the mountain goat falls, it's, you know, I don't care what anybody says, it's rough on the meat too. You know, it's, it's not, doesn't necessarily make it unsalvageable, but you start shattering bones and, and, you know, having animals get to the bottom of the hill, it's, they have been so damaged that the hide's not even attached to the, to the body anymore. It's just a balloon around this sack of meat. And I mean, you know, it's the same thing. Like, you know, you have a certain amount of waste when you hit a moose with a truck, um, just to the nature of the trauma, that you are, you know, so, you know, I don't know. And that's something, again, that's something everybody individually is going to have to decide. Um, I can't, you know, it's not my place to, to make that decision for anybody else, but it's something to consider and, uh, and can, you know, in a lot of circumstances make a big difference if it's your, you know, your, if it's a hunt of a lifetime, you know, uh, maybe you're better off waiting, <laughs> you know, waiting, I guess if you don't care and you want to buy a sheep, but I, you want to buy a sheep cape, but also the horns, you know, I mean, I, every year see several pictures of them that are just look like they've been thrown in a, in a washing machine with a pot, with a wheelbarrow load of gravel, you know, all scratched and chipped up. And, you know, like I think chips and sheep horns are pretty cool if they occurred naturally, but you know, they're not so, not, not quite as appealing to me if they're, if it's, just from a fall, but anyway, that's uh, probably probably enough ranting on that. Um, let's see another question: sheep hunting tips for novices, terrain to look for, e scouting, etc. Um, a lot of that's probably you know it could be lumped into that previous question about finding a new area. Um, you know, terrain to look for, obviously the the mountains, <laughs> um, but. You know, and it it kind of depends on the range. Usually in in sheep country, um, all sea rams mostly between like four thousand and fifty five hundred feet or six thousand feet. You know, I've shot them a little bit lower than that, and I've shot them higher than that. But that's usually kind of the zone to focus on. Um, you know, you and it, this varies by range too. Just in my experience, a lot of the areas I hunt they usually don't hang out at the very top where it's only rock and stuff like that. You know, they're usually kind of in a lower section where they've got good escape cover around them, nice, steep, rocky, nasty stuff, but they've got good feeding, you know, good green feeding areas. Um, and kind of, you know, maybe, you know, halfway up the Valley, but again, that's, I don't know. It's just one of those things that each spot is a little different and, um, you know, I'm no Donnie Vincent and I can't describe, I just struggle with describing certain things like this. Um, whereas, you know, if once, you know, once you start seeing sheep and seeing the way they move in this different country, you can, you'll get an eye for like being able to see spots that, 
Yeah, that's that looks like a good area for to ha- for him to hang out or or whatnot. Um, e scouting, I don't, you know, that kind of it's a similar type of thing. You know, I may be able to look at like Google Earth like everybody else and be like, uh, this looks like a sheepy area or whatnot. But yeah, it, Google Earth lies in a lot of. And the stuff usually looks dramatically different on the ground than it does on Google Earth. So if anything, if I already have an area in mind to go, you know, I will check out Google Earth, you know, to maybe look for trails or access points or, um, you know, potentially form a plan. Just as a secondary resource for a map, I don't ever, like, decide where I'm going to go based on Google Earth. Um, let's see. This is a good one. Non-resident saved for a long time. One hunt in Alaska. What are good options? Well, I guess that, I mean, that's, that's really kind of a personal thing and it depends how much you saved for and what you want to kill. Um, and the kind of, and the experience you really, you want, you know, there's so many different, like a backpack sheep hunt is completely different than a, the float hunt for moose or you know our muskox hunt or a mountain goat mountain goat hunt on kodiak um the biggest thing you know you're gonna kind of like kind of like narrowing down your decision on picking a sheep hunting area you know you you know your species and whether or not you want to do it on your own or you want to guide um because you know goats goats sheep and grizzly bears you got to have guides so that's kind of the first thing you want to decide. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of different good options for, for any of those. Now, if you want to do a, do it, do it hunt on your own, do it yourself. Um, it requires a lot of legwork because logistics up here, everything. And, you know, when you have an outfitter, that's part of, part of why it costs so much is because is because, you know, that outfitter is the one dealing with all the logistics and, and that stuff is not cheap. So, um, you know, just understand on a do-it-yourself, you're gonna have to put more legwork into the logistics. A lot of guys like uh, like there's a few hunt planners out there. Um, you know, like Larry Bartlett's Pristine Ventures has been doing hunt planning for a long time, and um, like Troy Sessions has one now, sixty-inch uh, club or something like that for moose. Where in general, if I understand it, now I mean there's some guys, will, some outfitters will poke fun at it, like you know, guiding without a license type thing. And I don't understand any of the, I'm not involved in any of it. So, so, you know, just take whatever I say with a grain of salt, but I can see the appeal of it being nice. Um, because I mean, shoot, even for a resident, some of these hunts are very logistically challenging. So what, what it boils down to, at least as far as I understand is these, you know, hunt planning services, some of them will help with gear. Some of them may not, um, or like, a, you know, and there's some outfitters that also run self-guided hunts where they provide you with, with like camp, a camp and, you know, they take you to a spot and they give you camp gear, you know, tent stove, shit like that. So you don't have to bring it, but, uh, you're paying them, you know, they'll get it, you let them know, you know, what you're looking for out of a hunt and they'll get you lined up with a spot, help you line up transport, etc. You know, cause a lot of these, it's like a middleman type of thing, but for a lot of people, that's worth it to, to, you know, save the headache of all the logistics. Um, so I think that can be a good option for some people, but you know, it's hard for me to say what, 
what what is best you know i mean it really depends on what depends on what a person is looking for um because you could do 50 different hunts up here and have 50 totally different types of experiences so i guess that's kind of a real personal thing but i just approach it like like finding a new hunting spot you know you know start big and narrow it down and eventually you'll get to what what you'll think will work best for you and if you've saved up for a long time you know just it's that's the thing you've been saving for a long time so take your time and make sure it's something that you know is really what you're looking for let's see next question mountain goat hunting tens in a spotting scope or 12s i'd say absolutely either eights or tens in a spotting scope um usually i mean i don't know i like i my binoculars now are 10 power um and i use them for pretty much everything that i do up here and they work well um most stuff especially goats guy could get away with eights but i would not ever not take a spotting scope um I, i don't know Maybe I wouldn't if I was going to, you know, the south end of Kodiak where they want you to kill nannies and all I got to do is worry about that the goat doesn't have a kid. Um, then, and I, and I don't care at all whether it's mature, immature, whatever. Um, or maybe if I was, you know, some super judge of mountain goats and I could tell um, without a spotting scope. But for me personally, I'm not going goat hunting without a spotting scope. Um, and even... I don't know. Even if I was just taking binoculars, I would just take the ones I have. I don't, you're not going to gain anything using 12s or 15s. Um, goat judging is such a finicky, a finicky, uh, nuanced type thing that, that having like two extra power is not going to make the difference. You know, if you want to judge them, you need a spot and scope. Let's see. What are the best Alaska guide outfitters to hunt with in your area? That's kind of a loaded question. Um, there's a lot of them in Fairbanks, and it really, you know, that's another one that's really a really personal thing, you know. Um, depends on what you want to do. You know, if you are if you want to bow hunt moose and moose and grizzly bears, stuff like that, um, you know, like Stan Parkerson with Denali Hunts is uh, – is a, is a real good guy and and has some really great country. And I think, you know, pretty dang good success for bow hunters. He's been doing it a long time. Um, that's who Jeff co who Jeff co works for. Um, and just super good guy and a good country, you know, but he only guides bow hunts and he doesn't really advertise much. He doesn't need to, but, uh, um, that's only bow hunts. You know, if, if you want to go sheep hunting, you know, there's, a handful of pretty, pretty good sheep hunting guides. Um, you know, if you want to go, if you want to go goat hunting, there's a whole nother realm of guys, you know, a lot of outfitters, they'll do a few things, but you know, I don't know of all, any of them that are like the best at all of them. Um, so yeah, you know, that's, that's a personal thing. If you want to like shoot, shoot, if you want to, whoever asked me that, if you want to shoot me a message, you know, a little more specific on what you're looking for, then, then I can kind of, help direct you at least the best I can. Let's see. My mo- what is your most memorable hunt? Man, I have no idea. That kind of I think changes from day to day and as my memory deteriorates, um <clears throat> have had a lot of good ones. Um I just keep saying <laughs> maybe I'd say the next one's going to be the most memorable because <laughs> I'm always look like trying to look forward to the next one. I mean, 
kind of relishing the last one and looking forward to the next one. Let's see. This is a good one. Um, um, what are some good bear baiting and luring scents? And that's, you know, we're obviously, you know, here in a few months going to start talking bear baiting again because it'll be that time of year. But, the, you know, winter is a good time to, to kind of mull on some of this stuff. And I think... I think one of the most important things on a bear bait is your, your lure scent. You know, the basic principles are scent to get for, for me and my experience is I got to have a good, strong scent to get the bear there and then just food, food to keep them there. You know, they're not, and I mean, there's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot of products out there. Um, I personally prefer stinky lures um i think they keep their smell better um i know guys that that are in areas with both black bears and grizzly bears that don't want grizzly bears in will exclusively use sweet stuff because the black bears do seem to be more more attracted to the sweet stuff but uh but i i prefer super stinky stuff um you can be you you can really go you know setting up a bear bait you can really go as crazy as you want to with lures. And I don't know, you know, I haven't like done a scientific experiment with this, so I don't know how far down the line is, is an added benefit. You know, how much stuff you use makes what kind of difference. Cause I know some guys that all they use is Magnum Martin trap and lure and dog, you know, and dry dog food and kill a ton of bears, you know, I have no problem, but but there are a lot of neat, uh, neat like scents and stuff out there. I guess it's starting with, you know, <clears throat> natural stuff or stuff you get. A beaver carcass is super hard to beat. You know, they do either the bears a lot of times will get them down if you don't have them, you know, hung up where they can't get to them. Bears will get them down or they start drying out and I think lose some of their scent over time. But a beaver carcass, you know, fresh skin beaver carcasses is a really good one. I like to cut the casters open. Um, so that nasty caster juice, um, can get open to the, can drain down and get the scent everywhere. But, uh, yeah, fresh skin beaver, um, you know, rotten, rotten fish skins. Like a lot of times I'll, I'll save skins off of salmon fillets and freeze them or pike fillets or whatever. And, um, in the springtime, put them in a buck, in a, in a sealed bucket with a little bit of water and leave them out in the sun for, a while or in the garage if it's cold, you know, for a couple of weeks and man, that stuff gets stanky and, and I mean, it's rank and you, you know, those bears can smell that shit for miles. Um, another one that I, you know, I, I do always, I always try to hang up beavers and I always try to have like a fish stink. And then, um, I usually the past couple of years have been getting, getting like trap and lure Magnum Martin's one of them. It's, and a lot of the like stinky commercial bear lures use skunk, skunk essence or whatever as a base. And that's, you know, what Magna Martin is. It's just a very resilient smell that the cold, you know, it's good Martin lure because the cold doesn't knock that scent down as much. Um, some of the sweeter stuff when it gets super, super, you know, when it gets 20 below, um, the stuff just doesn't smell as well. And that Magna Martin's good stuff. Um, knockout is good stuff. It's a paste that you, you know, smear on trees. And I think it's like that. It smells like propane. It smells like the stuff that they put, put in propane so you can smell it. And 
you know, at least the story I the version I heard is that they started making that stuff because the bears are attracted to that. They like that smell. Um, so knockout's good. And then, uh, you know, Batum 907 has a lot of, you know, has a lot of good products. Um, and I, I really like the ones I like the most are, um, I like beaver caster scent and uh, I'm trying to get this all, get all my facts straight because I do like a lot of the stuff. Um, beaver caster scent is one of my favorites. Um, the the nasty boar stuff they have is works well too it's very stout i think it's similar it, 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 i i i would guess that they're using some skunk stuff in that too that's kind of what that smells like but uh but um their actual products i think it's bruins brunt it's just like these crystals that you spread around your bait can on the ground and they kind of and bears they kind of like the oils and the crystals like they don't wash away and the bears will like get it on their feet and track it out and make scent trails and uh and you know i like say i don't have like proof that that's made the difference but i have been using it and i really i it seems to make a difference so uh um i like that stuff um and you know they've got some various beaver caster stuff but the sow and heat gel um that they have is, is pretty dang effective too. The stuff's super potent. Um, I like that stuff. And, uh, you know, for years I'd use those aerosol bear bombs, the sow and heat. And I'm even early season. I'm convinced that that sow and heat stuff works. It makes a difference. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I've gone from being real slow, like no bears, even this year, you know, it was, it was May and it was, it was a little early. I mean, way before the rut is in, early may but yeah you know it's earlier than the bears really normally start showing up and nothing had shown up in a week and a half and uh, i just kind of had to had to had to shoot my water early and get my bait out so um nothing had been coming in nothing and then i sprayed a can of that bear bomb i think yeah i think that's what i did it was some sort of set it was either the betum 907 sowany or a bear bomb or both i can't remember but put that sow and heat stuff out there, go back two days later and there's three big boars on it. I mean, I, and I don't know how many times that's happened. So the sow and heat stuff definitely is, is good bait. And, you know, I'd say if you, if you get, especially if you get a single alone sow on your bait, just leave them alone, you know? Um, and that's as good a bait as anything, having a sow using your bait. Cause those boars will start showing up. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that kind of hammers a lot of bay, bear baiting and luring sense. I don't, I don't know. Some guys, I'm not sold on burns, you know. I don't know. My thoughts are that what are the chances that you're going to, at least the areas I hunt, what are the chances, you know, you sitting there with a pot burning are going to bring brand new black bears in there for the very first time when, you know, generally if they can smell the burn, they can smell you. So... I don't know, but that being said, there are guys who kill a lot of bears who swear by burns, so it's not, I don't really, it's not my thing, but um, I wouldn't write it off just because I said that, because there are guys that really like it. Anyway, um, moving along, what do you think is the perfect weight for a sheep rifle? Um, the one your buddy carries, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Um, obviously, you know, lighter, you know, lighter's easier to carry. 
I'm not as super particular on all that as some as some folks tend to get. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know. I mean, the perfect weight for a sheep rifle is one you don't even have to carry. Um, and kind of like I, like I think I mentioned, you know, it's depends on how much money you want to spend because there are some super light rifles out there. Um, but they, it just typically ends up costing a lot more money. You know, I think like anybody, you know, if I, if I'm going to, rather than fuss and fuss over, you know, another thousand bucks to shave a few ounces, I'd probably be better off losing a few pounds, you know, or finding somewhere else to cut it. You know, it just doesn't any, I don't know, for me, any normal fat, I don't even weigh, I don't even weigh, and I don't know what any of my rifles weigh, but any just normal standard run of the mill factory rifle. That's not like the heavy barrel or heavy model, um, is, is just fine for me. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't really see any reason to get, get crazy over it unless it's just, you know, kind of for the entertainment purposes. Cause it is fun to, to tinker with gear and see just how light we can get. But really, you know, any serious sheep hunter that, you know, a few ounces or half a pound even is going to make the difference between them getting a sheep or not getting a sheep or having fun and not having fun. Then, you know, I don't, you know, they got some, some issues, <laughs> but one thing I would say on that, on that is that I think a lot of people go way over scoped. You know, I mean, you see like a lot of people buy, like someone buys like a, a Kimber mountain ascent, you know, some kind of featherweight freaking rifle and puts like a 15 power scope on there. <laughs> you know, you're just, you know, you're negating all the, all the money you've spent on light, lightening this rifle up by putting a huge freaking optic that you don't need on it. And, you know, again, that's everybody's personal choice and prerogative. If you want to do that, that's fine. But, you know, I've never felt like I was under scoped with a, a seven or eight power top end scope, you know, a two to three by a two to seven by 33 or a two and a half to eight by 36, you know, just a little scope like that. I've never felt, felt under scoped and, uh, I mean, that sheep I shot a couple of years ago at 465 was with a 2.7 by 33. And, I mean, yeah, he was pretty small in there. But, I mean, that was like right almost to the limit of what I thought, felt was a responsible shot. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. If, you, if you're going to play the long-range shooting game, you know, an ultralight rifle is not your friend anyway. So... I wouldn't worry about it. I mean, I would just whatever, you know, any run of the mill factory rifle, I think is going to be, is going to be plenty light enough, but especially if you do go and try to be lightweight, don't overscope yourself either. Cause it's, it's just, it's magnification that you don't need. Let's see here. What do we have else? Tro- proper trad bow arrow weight rule of thumb. Um, I don't know. You hear a lot of guys, at least for bows and not wanting to do damage to your bow and having it quiet down. A lot of guys will say, um, you want 10 grains of arrow per pound. I don't know. I don't really, I've got my own set of, of kind of limitations and circumstances with my long draw length. So I'm in a little bit different boat than a lot of guys. Um, 
if it's me, I mean, my, for whatever, it could just be, you know, something in my head. I, I would try to get an arrow at least, you know, 500, 550 grains. You know, we're dealing with bows that are a lot slower and less efficient than compounds. Um, so, you know, put momentum on your side because certainly speed is not going to be. So you get a reasonably heavy arrow, you know, even, you know, a lot of guys that you may start having some serious, some serious arch in your trajectory if you, if you get up above 650 grains. But I mean, what my dad, that muskox, he shattered the front shoulder and punched through the backside shoulder with like a 50 pound bow and 525 grain arrow or something like that. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, if you're somewhere in that range, um, I would not go under 400, but you get a good cut on contact, um, two, two blade broadhead or two blade with bleeders, something like that. That's just razor sharp. That's going to help you as much as anything. Let's see. Does putting in for tags as a party actually increase your chances for getting drawn? No, and in fact, I would say it it hurts your chances if you're thinking as the party, you know. So, um, I get you know the part the party tag drawing thing here in Alaska is attractive if you're if you are for sure wanting to hunt with this you know X person or whatever. It's like if me and Frank like. We're freaking hunting together no matter what, you know, we'd put in for a party application because, um, the way it works is you both get put in <laughs> the way it works. Well, that's a whole nother can of worms. Basically, you know, you both put in, it doesn't put you in twice. I don't think it puts you in twice. I how does that work? I'm just talk totally talking out of my ass right now. Um, but it was explained to me and it doesn't, it doesn't help your chances at all. I believe you're both put in on the same number or however that works out goes into the system. So the two of you are put in one time. And obviously if, if you get drawn, both of you get drawn now, but you, I believe you're just put in as one. So if, both of you put in independently, you know, that's, you're put in as two, but there's obviously like most of the time, one, one of you would get drawn more likely than both. Carrie and Frank this year was just kind of a friggin' fluke well, and everybody else. But, uh, yeah, I'd say short answer. No, it does not increase your chances for getting drawn at all, but it is nice if, you want them if you you know you have a particular hunting partner that you want to hunt with, and you know either you're both going to get drawn or you're both not going to get drawn, and you can go somewhere else together. You know, like Frank and I had been hunting together quite a bit recent years, and um, I got drawn for toke last year, so it's like all right, see you later, buddy. <laughs> you know, because we're gonna go we're we're gonna go hunt. You know, we're not gonna like just say all oh, because we feel like we have to hunt together um, that we're gonna sacrifice each other's hunting season that's just not how it works so anyway um let's see judging goats let's see some tips on judging goats i am definitely not a master goat judger by any means um i've looked at enough of them that 
I can you you know I can usually tell Bill usually tell Billy's as you know at least at least more mature Billy's I can tell from nannies pretty easily especially if they're both if they're you know in relative I can see them both at the same time that really helps for me you know when I go goat hunting it kind of takes it takes a little bit for me to get my bearings again just because I just don't have a ton of experience judging goats but uh after a while especially if you can compare them you can start to see um billies will have a dramatically larger base you know and you can really see that on mature on more mature billies when you can also like uh, turn over this way and look at nannies then turn over here you can see the difference in the base and coming up towards the rut they the billies also the gland behind their horns gets all swelled up at least as far as i understand and uh a lot of times that gland makes the base of the horn look huge compared to the nannies um and you all, you can also go by the shape of the horn you know nannies typically like a mature nanny will come up and if you're looking at them from the front it looks like they kind of have a real pretty flare out to the side like a v kind you know or like a flaring v whereas billy goats a lot of times are much more straight up and back but uh <clears throat> yeah i mean that's i mean it, it just in it for me it just took looking at a lot of goats and um if you have doubts on nanny or billy you know that's usually the ones that uh, the ones that i have trouble telling are the real young billies um the you know those i don't i'm just kind of half talking out my ass again but uh yeah, I mean, if you have doubts on whether it's a Billy or a Nanny, you just watch them piss. But I really don't know a ton about it, but um, I'll see if I can dig up some resources for to help out quite a bit more on that. Let's see, about the Stone Point Grizzly, how did you get into the stand with testicles at large? <laughs> no, really, I don't mean to embellish it much more than it was, Um just knew he was going to come, so I got up in the stand and shot his ass. Um, it was actually a little bit more nerve-wracking going in there to go, going in there to get him because after I shot him, you know, <clears throat> when I not to like tell old stories again, but when I before I shot him, I knew he was he was behind the tree, kind of quartering quartering pretty hard towards me. And as he he at a certain point, he stepped back and turned slightly more broadside and i guess i just perceived him as turning much more broadside than he did because i hit him right exactly where i wanted to <clears throat> you know on a broadside shot would have gone right through the middle of both lungs or even a little bit more towards the front it was about three three and a half inches behind the front shoulder and as he ran off i'm like all right yeah he's dead it heard him run 70 yards and stop and uh I figured he was dead right there, and after looking at the video and realizing, eh, that angle wasn't quite what I thought it was, that was a little nerve-wracking going back in there after him, um, and I was really surprised he was still alive when we went back there three hours later, but I don't know, it, not really scary, you just, you just deal with it, you know, and you be careful and pay attention, and it's just, I don't know, it's it's easy to, you know, it's tempting sometimes to, to try and make it something it's not, but there's plenty of people doing that shit out there right now. So, I mean, it's fun. It's, it's a little dangerous, but man, I mean, it's, you just, you just do it. It's, it's, 
I don't know how to say it. It's just as simple as that. You just do it and be careful and pay attention and not do anything stupid. And, you know, as far as, as far as it being a stone point, <clears throat> I'd freaking, I'd sh- shoot, I'd shoot that same grizzly bear with that same stone point over, you know, it, you know, I have, I trust that stone point. I want to say more than a rage, you know, I mean, out of that longbow, it freaking, at least we, you know, an arrow can only do so much with the, the, you know, the, given the, the spot you hit them and the angle they're standing at, you know, obviously it couldn't, it was not an ideal, isn't an ideal hit as I thought it was initially, but the arrow got complete penetration, went all the way through and, you know, stuck in the, the bone on the hind leg stopped it. So, and every stone point arrow I've shot at at a bear ended up doing the same thing, punching all the way through them. So, you know, my only worry, I think I've said before about the stone points was that I couldn't practice with them, you know, so I had to just trust that they trust that they would shoot close enough to the steel points to uh, be in there. I mean, they flew perfectly. They just seemed to shoot a little bit lower, a little bit lower than the steel. Um, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> moving along. Let's see. Did Steve shoot a pig in one DS one thirty eight? Unfortunately, no, he didn't. Steve struck out. Sorry, Steve. I don't even know if he listens, but um, yeah, I I actually haven't talked talked to Steve in person since he got back. But I know they dealt with some some pretty serious weather and rams in spot in bad spots and stuff like that. And he passed some and because that was a, a spot that he really you know could have shot a monster and I, you know sometimes it just don't work out that's why they you know that's why not everybody's doing it but uh yep so that was pretty unfortunate but i'm sure he'll get back on the board next year where can a guy find some outdoor related work in alaska from december through may well that's kind of if you you figure it out let me know <laughs> um i mean really obviously december through may is pretty pretty slow time i'm not sure if it's a guy who's who's wanting to move up here and wondering what he can do between those months i mean there's some it depends on what outdoor work you're looking at i'm assuming outfitting um there's some outfitters that that run various stuff at some points through there but that's just kind of a slow kind of a slow time of year so let's see next question diy hunts for non-residents pros and cons um, I mean, I guess some of the pros, like, well, you're doing it on your own. You're not <clears throat> having to pay an outfitter. I mean, nothing wrong with guided hunts or going on guided hunts. Sometimes you have to, but, uh, but it, I don't know. I feel like to me, there's a certain level of satisfaction when you can kind of plan and put something together by yourself. Um, and it's a lot of times going to be somewhat cheaper than doing a guided hunt. Um, sometimes significantly, sometimes not, um, I guess the cons are it's going to be a shitload more work for you to uh, to get everything lined up because there's a lot a lot of times there's a lot of logistics and stuff like that 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 you wouldn't really even think of. Um, that's probably the biggest ones for me is it's just going to take a lot more legwork as a con. It's going to take a lot more legwork to uh, have a fun, successful hunt by yourself on your own up here. <clears throat> Why aren't the twenty five cals more popular? I don't really know, um, 25 caliber rifles, um, they're referencing, um, I mean, I, there all be, always be a soft spot in my heart for a 25 out six. That's, um, I killed more sheep with that than anything. And I mean, I love that rifle. I haven't been, 
haven't been using it in preview in the the recent years, but uh, I don't know. I think at one point they were super popular, and as of now, I think I think primarily because you do get you know some nice flat shooting rifles in twenty five cal. I mean, even the twenty five out six is old as freaking dirt, but uh, but it's still you know still a good shooting cartridge. Um, I think a lot of it, at least for me, what I would guess is that it. That, 25 25 caliber bullets that are out there aren't nearly as ballistically efficient as the is the six and a halfs which are 26 caliber there's just something about that 260 at least the way the bullets are constructed in that 260 whether it's you know the ratio of length to diameter um that gives them such nice ballistic coefficients um they buck the wind better they and they hold their velocity better um, and they shoot good. I mean, which there's plenty of 25 cals that shoot good. I don't know. Um, I think, I think most of it just is that the six, five is, and not just six, five Creed more. I'm talking just the bullet, a 6.5 millimeter bullet is just ballistically superior to a 25 cal. So it kind of, that just overshadows it. It's like, you know, yeah, the 25 caliber is great, but when you have one that's basically the same size, you know that you can you can get heavier bullets and more ballistically efficient bullets in. Why wouldn't you use that? So I think that that's my take on it. See, so introduce your guests. I joined episode forty-ish. Who are Nick, Frank, and Temple? Um, I would recommend you go back and listen. <laughs> listen, well, obviously for my own selfish interests, I would recommend you go back and listen to all the other ones. Um, but Nick, Frank, and Temple are all good friends of mine, and uh, you know, I guess that we can tend to kind of just roll into things without explaining everything, everything each episode. But, uh, you know, there are all three guys who live up here that are good friends of mine that, um, you know, are frequent guests on the show. So I don't necessarily introduce them all the time. Let's see. What are your Tradbow setups, equipment specs? Um, I don't know my, the bow I killed my, my grizzly bear with this year is a uh, bear's paw bows, um, 68 inch longbow, and it's right at 51 pounds at 32 inches, which is my draw length. <clears throat> and my uh, the bow I shoot mainly is a bear's paw bow too, but it's his uh, his ILF riser and limbs, which he calls the avian riser. It's just an aluminum machined riser and uh, wood core carbon limbs and the setup I've been shooting the most are, it's a 60, uh, they're long ILF limbs, so it's a 64-inch bow, and it's, man, I got the burps today, it's uh, six, it's uh, 52 pounds at 32 inches, which is my draw length, and all this summer I've been shooting day six, 300 spine arrows, they're like 600, no, they're 597 grains, I think, is the total finish setup. Um, been shooting four fletch, four inch trad veins, um, half of the summer, summer, I was shooting some other veins and they were just a little bit stiff and <clears throat> out past 40 yards. I could, with broadheads, I could tell the difference that they just weren't, there was getting a little bit of, sh- of, of rest contact with the veins and it, and it was affecting the fly a little bit. So I tried the trad veins on them and, and, uh, and I mean, just fly like laser beams now. 
Uh, let's see. All right, here's a good one. It's a lore 48, and this this guy lives up here. Lore 48ers complain about needing guides on many big game hunts. Explain why. Um, and I don't know. This is all, you know, you'll get different answers depending on who you talk to. And I think I think a little. There's a little bit of truth to all of it. Um, there's several different angles you can look at this with. And uh, so where would you even start? So sheep. Mountain goats and grizzly bears, brown bears require guide in Alaska for non-resident. You know, I mean, I could, I can understand, you know, some, so a lot of people don't really like that because the shit is super expensive and there's several, you know, the main reasoning you hear everyone, you know, primary, and this isn't to throw anybody under the bus. I got, you know, I got friends who are outfitters and all this stuff too. So I'm just trying to be like, trying to be fair or whatever, you know, or whatever the new, trying to be a neutral party, you know, when explaining this, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the justification for reasoning behind this is, is a lot of these hunts are too dangerous for non-residents to do and people would get in trouble. Um, and that is true. You know, if, if they just, you know, pulled the plug and said, go have fun, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, I mean, there's residents that get in trouble every year up here doing various sorts of stuff. Um, so the, the danger of some of these hunts and the remoteness, you know, primarily like sheep and goat hunting and, and then, you know, grizzly and brown bear hunting presents a whole new challenge and, and it's, it's not exactly the safest thing in the world to do. Um, so having the, the, the resource of an experienced guide there with you helping you um, is a very valuable thing and, and does definitely contribute to the safety uh, people's safety out there. That being said, there are plenty of, you know, Alaska residents. We can go do whatever we want, essentially go hunt all this stuff without, without a guide. And there's plenty of people in the lower 48 that are just as, as, their aptitude is just as good or better than, you know, most of the most residents out there traipsing around through the woods. So, um, you know, that reasoning, the safety reasoning, I can, there is some truth behind it, but it's not a universal, it's not universally true or applicable. You know, in some ways I would, you know, in some ways I, th- I think it would be nice to remove the guide requirement for some things, but then you're opening a whole nother can of worms because that guide requirement at least partially kind of bottlenecks the the non-resident hunting pressure if you know say if they eliminated the guide requirement for sheep then all of a sudden all non-resident sheep tags would have to go to draw you know they would just there would just it'd be too much too much demand for for the resource um and at, at where as of now you can you can you know if you save the money or you have the money you can pretty much go on over counter over the counter hunt with an outfitter you know once every four years if you kill one i think they changed the the bag limit to one one in four years for non-residents but um you know there's also some guys that you know wouldn't the plenty of people that wouldn't mind having it being all draw for non-residents if a guide's not required, because then at least, then at least the average guy has a chance, um, you know, cause a lot of guys just can't afford to come up and go with a guide. Just, it's just a fact of life. Um, I think in, at least partially a lot of the guide requirements 
might get myself into trouble, but I think partially a lot of the guide requirements are to benefit the outfitter industry. I mean, it's it just plain and simple. You know, it's kind of a security, job security for that industry. If it's required, then people are going to have to hire you. Um, <clears throat> that that may not, I don't think that's the, I would be, I don't think I'd be correct assuming that that's the whole reasoning, but I'm sure at least partially that's that's part of the reasoning behind it. Um, so needless to say, it's it's just a mess, but there there are some very, logical reasons why why outfitters are required for some of these hunts that can be dangerous and logistically i mean you know a lot of people don't they see the price and they don't understand the logistics going into into making that price and all the, the costs to the outfitter for for putting on this hunt whereas you know yeah it might be cheaper but a lot of times i mean there's it would not be for some especially for someone just coming up and trying to go sheep hunting you know, chances of you actually having a real quality hunt coming and do it on your own for the average guy um, are probably less than spectacular. So anyway, um, I think <laughs> I'll probably finish up with this one. <laughs> this one's um, Screw, Mary and Kill, Donnie Vincent, Aaron Snyder, and Brian Call. Well, all I'll say about this one is I'm killing Snyder because I like him, and, and I'm sure he'd rather die than be suggested to the other two. So anyway, with that, um, hopefully I haven't worried your hair off too bad and you're not sick of listening to me. But i got to get going, and uh, thank, thank you guys for listening. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, I appreciate it. If you leave a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on, if you want to give me the finger and give me one star, that's fine too. I could care less. But uh, no, I appreciate all you guys listening and uh, definitely appreciate all the support on Patreon. Um, definitely helps me helps me kind of compensate for some of the costs of running this thing. So, all right, until next time, thanks.